The opera that we're going to see tonight, and you can see this evening uh, stills from Antony Minghella's production on the screen, the opera that we're going to see tonight uh, actually began in a theatre that was just five minutes brisk walk from where you're all sitting. After the huge success of Tosca, Puccini was looking for a subject for the next opera. Uh, almost certain, uh, because he was endlessly uncertain about himself and his talents, that maybe uh, it wouldn't work, but certain he had to find a new subject. He'd already looked at Metterling's play, Pelias et Melisande, but he knew Debussy was busy setting that. Also, interestingly, he looked at Les Miserables. That's an interesting thought. What would have happened if Puccini had set Les Miserables rather than others later? Anyway, on a visit to London in the summer of 1900, friends of the composer took him to the Duke of York's Theatre, which is the theatre about five minutes away from here, to a performance of David Belasco's play, Madame Butterfly, which Belasco had written uh, using a sh very short novella, short story, really, by an American writer called John Luther Long. Puccini saw the play, but really didn't understand a word of what was going on. But he was greatly moved by Butterfly's story, and after the performance, he rushed to the green room, he embraced David Belasco, and begged to be allowed to make an opera from the play. Uh, Belasco reported that moment in what actually are probably pretty unreliable memoirs. He said, I agreed at once and told him he could do anything he liked with the play and make any sort of contract because it was impossible to discuss arrangements when an impulsive Italian with tears in his eyes has both his arms around your neck. <laughs> in fact, Puccini was wiser than perhaps Belasco knew, because in choosing a story set in Japan, he revealed himself quintessentially as a man of his own age. By the end of the 19th century, uh, Europe, uh, right across Europe, east and west, north and south, was utterly fascinated by all things Japanese. John Luther Long's short story was almost certainly, which involved a plot of a geisha uh, who has an affair with a white naval officer, almost certainly came from one of the most exotic novels of the age, Madame Chrysanthemum, written by a Frenchman called Pierre Loti. The Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists had fallen in love with Japanese woodblock prints, with the work of Utamaro in particular. Indeed, Vincent van Gogh and his brother Theo collected them assiduously and the great collection of woodblocks that you can see in, I think it's the museum in The Hague, is the, the core of that is what the, the van Gogh brothers collected. And if you've read that lovely little book, The Hair with the Amber Eyes, uh, you'll remember that the Netsuki that are collected by Edmund Duval's family come, perhaps in part, from one of the most celebrated antique shops in Paris of the period that specialized, one of two that specialized in Japanese goods. European collectors had begun to collect assiduously Japanese artifacts, kimonos, ceramics, lacquer work, and Netsuki. So, a story like that of the geisha Chocho-san is already, in a way, preaching to a converted audience. It's bringing to them something that they're already interested in and care about. Well, to understand, help us understand Puccini's version, we're joined tonight by Mita Ravel, Ravel who is covering the role of Butterfly and singing one performance on May the 28th, and Andrew Smith, who's a member of Eno's music staff. And we're also joined by an old friend of this programme, the theatre historian Sarah Lenton. So will you please welcome Sarah Lenton. Sarah, I've suggested that Madame Butterfly seems to belong to that fashionable obsession at the end of the 19th century for all things Japanese. Yes, um, it started a bit earlier, hadn't it? Um, the Americans had forced the Japanese to open their ports in the 1850s, and really... Um, 
this is a house that does Mikado, um, 1880s uh, high watermark for Japanese interest in Europe. But from that moment onwards, I think Japan was something we, we were interested in and still are. And the moment J Japan entered the sort of Western consciousness, it was found incredibly appealing. Um, and it, it was just gathering in 1900. I mean, Klimt was using motifs, but... but you, you can go right back to the 1870s and find Japanese motifs in, in Western art. What do you think the fascination with, in particular, Japan in this period was? Oh, it's a new one. Um, we've been in the 17th century and had the Chinese and everybody learnt to drink tea and got interested in blue and white pots and things like that. And then it, that went through the 18th century. Then Egypt was dug up and that was great fun. And we had all the little sphinxes that start turning up on empire furniture and stuff like that. And we have Nabucco by Verdi and stuff. And hey, here's another exotic Eastern country. One that had deliberately kept its frontiers closed. Um, it was rather like the fascination of Spain for the 18th century, which also kept its frontiers closed. So people were terribly excited at a whole new country and so different. I mean, it still is. Is, is that difference the important thing? In a sense, does it become, as Spain did in the 18th and 19th century, a place where Europeans can imagine doing things that they can't do at home? I mean, is Japan this sort of place? Ah, well, of course, when people went to China, they did have an imaginary China in their head. So Jesuits would look around and say, where's Cathay? What do you mean Cathay? I, I want to see Cathay. And they had this magical China in their head which didn't exist. I think Japan was always a bit more realistic. Uh, of course, people didn't go there too often, so you were always st stuck with what you could bring over in a ship. So it, it was tend to be small things that came from Japan. That's why fans appear and, and the pots and all the rest of it. But then I think there was very early a conscious attempt to engage with Japan. Uh, Christopher Dresser, the, uh, the ceramic, um, you can see a lot of his stuff in the V&A, um, didn't want to do cute versions of Japanese pots. He wanted to do Japanese pots. He wanted to do the real thing. And there was this sense that the Japanese were looking at us, you know, they were very interested in us. And they started doing little pictures of us as we turned up looking weird in Japan. And there was this air of East and West looking at each other quite, I wouldn't say dispassionately, but with, with wanting to be quite accurate about what they saw. But I also wonder whether another of the kind of cultural strands at the end of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th is at work here. The, the, the what we might call the aesthetic movement, the love of beauty. Maybe mm. for many of these people, what Japan represents is a culture that is absolutely addicted to beauty. That's what they think. Uh, can I just go sideways on that? Um, what I noticed when this production first started here, uh, I've forgotten when the very first night was, but um, it's, this, this production's been going for a bit, hasn't it? Uh, Mingela, the director, was at the back of the stalls and some lovely things were going on on stage and then suddenly a bit of stagecraft went wrong and it was like, what do we do? Mingela, uh, instead of talking through the mic, you know, well, you do this and you put a green spot on that and come down stage, you know, the sort of thing directors say. He came up on stage, he sat down stage, cross-legged, and everybody joined him. He said, now... We must find the beautiful way round this. <laughs> and I thought, so there you are. So perhaps this, this Japanese ethos has got a beauty to it that if you allow yourself to, to go into it, yes, there's a quieter way of dealing with things. I'm not saying that's completely what Jap Japan is, but it was a different approach to stage direction. You, you've talked about the way in which the only things you can really bring back are things you can put in a ship, mm. which means kind of uh, objet de vertu, beautiful things to be collected and indeed sold. Um, had anybody seen Japanese theatre 
Ooh. Did anyone see Kabuki or no? Uh, no, it's the Sadayako Company, uh, who Puccini saw. And they toured America, uh, a Japanese theatre company. I don't know that it's Kabuki, but it's not unlike Kabuki. And they discovered incredibly early that Americans didn't really want to sit through five hours of classic Japanese wonderfulness. Uh, they, they wanted about an hour, and they didn't like men playing women. So with, they turn on a sixpence, this company, and they thought, right, okay, uh, we'll have a woman actress. Sounds bizarre, but we'll do that. So Sadayako, the, the, the businesswoman who ran this company, went in as a, a female actress, and we'll cut out all those noble bits of poetry, and we'll just stick to, what do they like? Suicides, murder and uh, big emotion. So they cut all their amazing stuff down to these hour-long melodramas and zapped it out. Of course, the Americans thought it was marvellous. And Puccini saw it and thought, as I think everybody did, oh, wow, aren't the Japanese astonishing? Telegrammatic, melodramatic, very... Um, as, as Puccini said, they have terrible efficacy. <laughs> and so when he was writing... Uh, Madam Butterfly, he, he did this anyway at these shows. He kept saying, cut it short, cut it short, keep it Japanese. <laughs> and uh, you, you'd be most distressed to know that this is actually not Japanese at all, but he meant it to be. <laughs> but there is a sense, too, in, in, in which Japan, seeing an opportunity, is beginning to export itself to Europe. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, obviously, of the great Paris exhibition of yeah. 1900 and the extraordinary pavilion that the Japanese government uh, built and filled with Japanese. But also that real curiosity that few people seem to know about, the Japanese village in Knightsbridge. Ah, oh, surely everybody here knows about the Japanese village in Knightsbridge because this is, of course, where Gilbert went um, to set up his Mikado. And uh, it's amazing. You could go to... And, and Muswell Hill. There were two villages, Knightsbridge and Muswell Hill. And you saw cute Japanese natives doing cute Japanese things. And you went and just watched them. And Gilbert went and made the acquaintance of a, a lady called Miss Sixpence, please, because that's the only English she knew. <laughs> it was for a cup of tea. She was obviously a cheap lady. Yeah, right. It was just for a cup of tea. And he got her over to the Savoy and taught... Uh, his first Mikado troupe, exactly how to walk on in a kimono, cope with the obi, do the funny little Japanese bow, don't giggle, hiss behind your fan when you're laughing, all that stuff. And so that again is this astonishing late 19th century, let's get it right. The fact that he then wrote a show in which all the jokes are about the English is neither here nor there. The look of Mikado was as correct as he could get it. I think it's astonishing, mm -hmm. yeah. Sarah, thank you. We'll be talking again okay. in a moment. We're going to have some music now. Mita Ravel, who is, as I say, is covering the role of Chocho San and singing one performance in the house on May 28th, and Andrew Smith, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff, are going to perform perhaps the most celebrated number in the whole opera. It needs no introduction, but will you welcome our two musical guests? Thank you very much.
I think you should take another bar. <laughs> Nita, Andrew, thank you both very much. One fine day, did I need to tell you that? Um, Nita, I mean, one of the things, just listening to you, hearing, hearing you sing, <clears throat> in fact, this is a great aria of defiance. And often we tend to think of it as butterfly, another example of butterfly the victim. It's not. This is a woman who knows what's going to happen. Mm. So she's not really a victim, perhaps, in quite the way we sometimes think of her. Well, I think uh, Butterfly is really very, very complex. Um, here, in this aria that I've just sung, she's telling Suzuki, um, you know, stop, you have no faith left. He will come back, although it's been three years. I know that he's going to come back and we're going to be happy, we're going to be a family unit again. Um, and personally, I do think that Butterfly is naive because when she... When she is married to Pinkerton in the beginning. You'll see in Act One, it's a lovely marriage scene. Um, she's only 15. This is a, a child bride. And when he comes back three years later, she's only 17. And remember, she's grown up with no father because her father actually committed uh, harakiri, um, committed suicide. So she's grown up like, like with, without a father, with a mother, um, and they, they, they did have a lot of money, we know that, because in those days, the people that would have committed um, Harakiri would have been the aristocracy. So we know that she's, she's of noble blood, that she's seen money, um, but for some reason, for the circumstances, she's, she's become quite penniless, you know, they, they don't have anything. Um, and also the geisha side of it, she's, um, she's, she's very young, so she's too young to become a fully-fledged geisha at 15. She would have been an apprentice. Um, so she, she's not quite sure what she's doing. So she's, she's getting into this marriage. She's acting the way she thinks that geishas would act, and she thinks that mature adults of, of 15 would act. But she's not really sure herself. Do, do you think that when she, she marries Pinkerton, in her own mind, she becomes not only Mrs. Benjamin Franklin Pinkerton, but she becomes European or Western, rather, American? Absolutely. I think this is a, a classic opera where you've got East meets West. You've got the um, unity of, of these two massive cultures colliding and also unifying because there is this child which comes out of this marriage. Um, and I think she, she's been brought up with sort of Shinto faith slash Buddhist. Um, so she comes and she's, she's got all her Japanese um, little figures. She's got the, the otoke, which you'll see her place there. Um, and she's grown up doing all of these prayers. But actually, when the marriage happened, she tells Pinkerton, actually, I went to the mission. So in those days, you'd have all the missionaries there, the Jesuits, I think. Um, and she actually changes faith and, um, and she shows Pinkerton her crucifix, which, which implies that she's ready to leave everything that is Japanese in order to become a beautiful Western bride. Someone once said to me that, that, that here she is at 15, going mm. on 18 by the end of the opera, yeah. but what she's actually required to do in terms of being a singer is produce the kind of voice that would ride through Isolde, <laughs> um, exactly. uh, if not Brunhilde. Yeah. Um, I mean, how demanding as a, as, a, as a piece of singing is this for you? I would say, well, forget about me, but for anyone who sings this role, it is the equivalent of running a marathon, emotionally and physically. Um, it's about three hours long, I think, the running time of the opera. You, butterflies on stage for pretty much all of it. And when she's on stage, it's, she's going from 
someone who's um, 15, very childlike, to becoming a mother, to then becoming a sort of adult with all these responsibilities who ends up committing suicide herself, like her father, so it all comes around full circle again. Andrew, how would you characterise the score? What seems to you distinctively butterflyish, or indeed Puccini-esque, perhaps, about the score? Well, first of all, I have to put my hands up and say that until four weeks ago, I didn't know this piece at all. I mean, despite, despite the fact that it's part of the major standard operatic repertoire, I, it's somehow I'd avoided this piece for, for many, many years. So it was a delight to finally open the score four, four weeks ago. So I am seeing this score from a, quite a superficial um, level. I'm sure many of you probably know it a lot better than I do. But my first impressions of the score, it is typically Puccini-esque. It has these lush uh, Italian romantic um, harmonies. It's through composed, um, and by that I mean, unlike a, a Mozart opera, it doesn't stop and start to highlight arias and duets and things. It's, it's very much a, a conversational piece in that respect. Um, but it does have a flavor about it, a sort of spice. Um, and, uh, and on closer analysis, it's, it uses a lot of um, pentatonic references, and by that I mean uh, the five note scale. Um, and as a boy, I, when I used to play the piano, I used to wonder how wonderful it was that you could just um, do a huge glissando on the black keys and just muck around on the back, black keys. And somehow it had that, that Eastern flavor. I couldn't put my finger on it because the black notes spell out the very simple pentatonic scale, which is used in a lot of uh, Eastern Oriental music. Uh, and Puccini, uh, for one, certainly uses this tool to create that, that, that flavor. Um, he also uses um, uh, percussion um, very much as a, as a main character in the pit. Uh, the wonderful use of the gong, the tam-tam, uh, the glockenspiel. Um, and at one point, he has the violins, rather than playing on the hairs of the bow, he has them turn the bow over, and actually they play on the wood of the bow. Um, as a as sort of almost tonal percussive instrument. And it has a wonderful effect. These are, these are great touches that he's put in. And, and are there distinctly Japanese touches in the piece too? I mean, authentic Japanese melodies, tunes? Well, I'm, 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 I have to say, I'm very grateful for you telling me you were going to ask me this question because uh, um, when you mentioned <laughs> no it, I thought... No previous planning, ladies I think... I, I'm sorry, are you saying that not all the piece is his own? He actually cribbed something from somewhere else? And actually, my, my suspicions should, been, should have been aroused, um, I think, as early as page 12, I think it is, when, <laughs> when we have, uh, if I can find it somewhere here, um, this theme cropped up, and I thought, that sounds a bit familiar. And completely convinced that was his. But you're right, there are uh, actually, and, and on close inspection, I went straight onto the internet and I found a wonderful site that informed me there are up to 10 or more Japanese songs that Puccini used in, when, he, when he was composing the score. And I've picked out um, three of them um, just for um, your amusement. They're the first one, uh, if I can find it here, um, some here, here we go. It's called if I get this, my pronunciation right, Suryo Bushi, and it sounds something like this. Okay, that's the start of it. 
And Puccini uses the lot. Uh, in fact, you're going to hear it uh, in a couple of minutes' time. He uses it in um, the Act Two uh, aria, uh, where Madame Butterfly is talking about the fact that she no longer wants to go back to the life of um, a geisha. Uh, and then Puccini pulls it out of the drawer right at the last minute, in the last dying seconds uh, of the opera. And we hear this. cheated slightly. Uh, that's not the last chord. Okay, that's what I thought the last chord should be. And when I first read through the score, the last chord, actually, I thought they've misprinted it. It's a third too low. Surely it should end in B minor, as I've just played. But in fact, this is what's written, and it's correct. And, it is, and do listen out for it. Don't fall asleep before the last chord, because it's the most <laughs> wonderful effect. So it's all unsettled. It doesn't resolve. There's more to, to, more to come. Maybe the story will repeat itself somewhere else in Japan. That was fantastic. The second theme I have here uh, is um, called Jizuki Uta, which is a workman's song. Apparently uh, originated um, uh, something about rice cultivation. It was, it was a folk song. Uh, this is a realization by a chap called, who I'd never heard of before, uh, Rudolf Dietrich in 1894. And again, you're going to hear this in a couple of minutes' time because it's part of the aria. And then the third one, which is my favorite, uh, is called Miyasan. Uh, and what did we say? This was a war, uh, an imperial march? It's the Imperial Army's War March. Right, have a listen to this. Very simple, very, very simple melody. Like that. And, and Pacini uses it to fantastic effect to bring in the character of uh, Yamadori, the, the, the rich prince, if I can find it in the score. And it comes out of this. So he uses it just to announce the arrival of this fantastic character. And actually, I was just on closer examination of the previous example, um, which sounded quite romantic in its feel, this one. This one, if you actually transpose the tune down a semitone, I can play the entire thing on all the black notes, which proves the pentatonic, and it's all, gee, it all just makes sense after a while. It's all there. 
So he's very, very clever. And there's one more little thing about Prince Yamadori's little introduction. Indeed. Puccini's stolen that, not only from Japan, but from somewhere from, else. Indeed. In fact, uh, um, Gilbert and Sullivan used this theme to announce the arrival of Mi the, the Mikado in Mikado. Uh, and Ole Kaitani, the um, maestro in the pit tonight, uh, informed me um, early on that in fact uh, there was a piano score of the Mikado sitting on Puccini's piano right throughout his preparation of this score. Uh, and he liberally um, dipped in and, and pulled bits out. And uh, so we owe a lot to, to the Mikado for, for this, the final matter. Which also only goes to prove Sarah's point that the, 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 the whole Japanese thing was right across. Europe. Mm. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. And we're going to have... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and you and Mita are going to sing the Act 2. Uh, yes. Part of the Act 2 aria for, for Butterfly. We are. Right. This takes place in Act 2 where uh, um, the, uh, the consul has come in to say that, in fact, she might be better off taking up Yamadori's offer of marriage, but uh, she rejects him, and this aria uh, uh, basically highlights her desire not to go back to the life of a geisha. And you'll hear the, um, the, the famous song, the, the dance song, which I've already illustrated to you, which is the moment, if you listen out for it, where the strings are playing on the backs of their bows which I can't do very well on the piano. <laughs> Face a life of such dishonor. 
Peter Raval, Andrew Smith, thank you both very much. Stay with us, because I'm sure there'll be questions from the audience for, for you as well as all of us. Um, despite his initial enthusiasm for Belasco's play, Puccini was still not absolutely sure that he actually wanted to turn it into his next opera. So on his way back from London in Paris, he began to talk to Emile Zola about Zola's novel, La Faute de l'Abbé Moret, and he also thought at one moment while in Paris he might make an opera about Marie Antoinette. That was a lucky escape, I should have thought. Anyway, eventually the rights to uh, Madame Butterfly were secured, and his two regular collaborators, Giacosa and Ilica, set to work on fashioning a libretto. This is going to be their third and last collaboration with Puccini. As before, Ilica would shape the plot and produce a prose version of the narrative that Giacosa would then turn into poetry for Puccini to set. Writing a libretto was always, for Puccini, a fraught time. Um, he kept losing his nerve. Indeed, there is a suggestion, perhaps, that he almost needed to lose his nerve somehow in order to get the kind of creative energy uh, that he needed to, to write the music. So there were, through this early period, difficulties on deciding whether this was going to be an opera in three acts or whether it was going to be an opera in two acts. Eventually, after much toing and froing, the libretto was eventually finished to everyone's relative satisfaction by the end of November 1901. And Puccini began to immerse himself in writing the score and very much in the kind of Japanese music that, that we've been hearing um, about. Uh, the Japanese folk songs perhaps came to him through the wife of the Japanese ambassador to Italy. Um, he was in contact with her. And as we've heard, he had a copy of the Mikado score on his piano uh, at Torre del Lago. Composition was slowed down on the work because Puccini, who was mad about motor cars almost as much as about music, uh, had a rather unfortunate motor accident. But eventually, all was set fair. The score was finished for what should have been an almost perfect first night at La Scala in February 1904. Rosina Stocchio was to sing Chocho San, Giovanni Zenotello, Pinkerton, and Giuseppe De Luca as Sharpless. But, in fact, that first night was a complete and utter disaster. Possibly because there was a cluck in the house uh, of the composer's enemies who were determined to wreck the performance. So, the love duet in Act One was hissed and booed. At the end of one fine day, there was complete silence in the auditorium. And when Butterfly's kimono suddenly billowed up in front of her accidentally, there was a cry from the top of the house, good heavens, Butterfly is pregnant. <laughs> the headlines were even worse the following morning and the next days. Fiasco at La Scala. Butterfly, diabetic opera, result of an accident. Puccini wrote to a friend that first performance was, quite frankly, a Dantean inferno, and all prepared in advance. And now he announced that he intended to entirely rewrite the opera. He withdrew it from, after the first performance from La Scala and gave the money back to the opera house. Three months later, the revised butterfly was unveiled in a much smaller house at Brescia and it was indeed a triumph, though the opera had subtly changed. Some of you with longer memories of, of Butterfly in this house may remember a production of the original version, which includes dialogue for Sharpless and Pinkerton uh, in Act One, that, in which neither of them have a very high opinion of Japan and both emerge as pretty unpleasant. And indeed, the little aria, the arietta at the end for Pinkerton, which gives perhaps him a moment of sympathy in the piece, wasn't there in the original. The version we hear now tends to be a result of the triumph at Brescia. 
Sarah, I'd like to begin in our second conversation by, by picking up the thought of Japonaiserie again. I mean, do you think that this is another example of the way in which Puccini as a composer really did have, uniquely perhaps, his finger on popular taste, public taste? Uh, mm, I've always noticed that Puccini goes from a play to an opera. It's a play that gets him going. When he was growing up in Lucca, the theatre there was a straight theatre rather than an opera house. And so he was much more exposed to straight theatre uh, as a young man, and it seems that that stayed with him. And he liked plays because they were already sorted. You've got the acts, you've got the characters, it's all done. Um, and so he could, and his, his, his sense of stagecraft was extreme. I mean, he, was, he directed his own shows usually. So I think, personally, that if a play was doing rather well, he would use the play and, and by default be fashionable. I'm not sure he, he went for the fashionable taste first. He went for what was going on well in, on the stage. And, and the, the two things seem to go together. I mean, that raises another question. I mean, should we think of Butterfly as we now hear it, and we're here tonight, as a two-act opera or a three-act opera? Well, um, when I notice... When it's a two-act opera, as we've done here at the Coliseum before now, I do love the lighting effect. You know, that she sits down, waits for Pinkerton, doesn't she? And, and in some, in some theatres, I don't know if you've ever done this, have you? Yes. And so you've had to sit there through that wonderful orchestral interlude, <coughs> acting away. And what have you done? Have you watched for him as the night fades and the dawn comes up? Do you, do you get depressed or do you, do you still think, no, he's coming, I'll, I'll just, it's just taking longer. How, how, how do you cope with that? Um, I think it's everything is in front of her. She's envisaging uh, how... how it's going to be this meeting, um, and I think she is. She's actually erring on slightly. I would say she was depressed through through this waiting. It's made her medically depressed, clinically depressed. So she's happy, sad, anxious. What's going to happen? I'm not quite sure. The sun's coming up. You can hear the birds. You'll you'll hear them in the theatre um, tonight. Uh, it's it's quite fantastic. And yeah, you can see the lighting change as well. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's quite an acting job for, for the soprano, not, not a note to sing, but a lot of acting. Because the problem with this is you've got to keep the kid happy if you've got a small child on stage. And the, the opera house have a little sort of niche to put him in. But for, the, um, um, for Puccini, he would have loved all this because he loved modern technological things. And they'd just worked out to do a crossfade with electric. So you could go from starlight to the, to the dawn. And I don't think, Christopher, you'll probably correct me, I can't think of a Puccini opera that doesn't have a dawn in it. Mm. <laughs> and, and he does that one spectacular, the end of Tosca. Exactly. Um, but, oh, they're, 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 and Turandot too. And uh, his friends put it down to the fact that he was a duck shooter. And he was always out, you see, at dawn. And he was, well, I don't know about that. Um, so... To me, on a sort of um, dramatic level, I'm interested in Act Two. And which do you prefer? As in, which act? act? Yes. Do you want two acts or three acts? I'm not sure. Oh. Here, here, here. I think it's it depends on the production, and this production does it so well that you have got three clear acts. Um, there is. I, th I feel though with the intermezzo in the so the the piece of music in between. Um, I like it when it's not broken because you can't, you don't see the break in her her chain of thought, that vigil sort of waiting there, and everyone's in it together. The audience are, are, are with you, I'm with you, you know. It's we're we're all doing we're all in it together, waiting for him to come. Brilliant. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I agree. So, 
do you think that, that if we're looking for where the moral centre of the piece lies, it clearly isn't Pinkerton. Um, <laughs> and as, 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 as Mira said, in a way, Butterfly has gone with Pinkerton. Is it Sharpless? Um, in all the uh, renderings of, of Butterfly I've seen, it's been Sharpless, especially... Um, yes, most, most Sharplesses make it quite sympathetic. And I noticed a little detail tonight when uh, Pinkerton toasts the proper wife he will, he will marry one day, Sharpless puts his hand over the whiskey glass and won't drink it. Now, um, the point is that the concealed plot in Butterfly is that actually uh, the Japanese, a very tidy race, uh, don't like sailors on shore leave too much, making a lot of fuss downtown. So they had this system where you could go to the custom house and buy a wife for $25 a month. And you'd have a proper contract, which is what you see at the beginning of this show, and it was renewable every month. And the girls used to hang on to this $25, obviously, and save it as a diary. And so for most geishas, it was fine. It was, it was just a, a solid relationship for a month and none of, none of the usual sort of um, awkwardness of, of being a geisha. And the men, of course, found it well, you know, got domestic comforts, you've got your nice little paper house and you've got your wife, and then you sail off. The problem, of course, was that some people, both sides of the contract, didn't necessarily understand the nature of the contract. And uh, Butterfly, who's been made 15 in this, hasn't completely understood what this contract is. And Sharpless twigs this and says very early on, she means this, she believes this. You do realise that, don't you? And he must have witnessed hundreds of these contracts. And this is, I think, as far as he can go to Pinkerton. Um, yet another sailor marrying yet another girl. Yes, but this girl believes it. This is also, and this production made me feel this very clearly, a story not of one, but of two innocent women, isn't there? There is Kate Pinkerton. I mean, in a sense, she too is partly wrong by all of this. Well, she certainly uh, acquired a, a son by the end of it rather, rather suddenly. I wonder, is she such a strong presence? There's a butterfly sees her, doesn't she, and says, that, who's that woman who frightens me? So she, she is the person who's going to take butterfly away. I've never felt that she's got a particular character, except we have to believe that the kid's going to be okay. Uh, the child, butterfly's child is handed over to Kate, and she says, because she's got hardly anything to sing, really, I'll look after him as my own son. And I think the audience always believes her. And I've never seen her done as anything other than sympathetic. Do uh, you have views well, on Kate? Again, I think, although she hardly sings in a way, um, but there's two sides of it. You know, they've been married for four months. So you ask yourself, um, are they here on a honeymoon or they've come for work? If so, is it that she cannot conceive? And secondly, um, if, she was a, if she was not uh, a wrongdoer, then why is she actually taking the child away from the mother? So these are my questions as playing butterfly. Why is this happening? What's the morality in it, the ethics of, of what they're doing? There was actually, I mean, just historically, but I, I mean, this is, this is a, an opera. Um, there was a problem with these marriages with the half-caste children. And this is where the West and East meet, and the West is definitely um, showing up badly. But actually, in a slight subtext, the East isn't doing too well either, because there was no assured place for the half-castes at that time in Japan. So there would have always been a problem with the boy, and it's why it's, it's understood to be a solution to the problem of the boy to give him to the Americans. We, we feel differently now, but, but I, I, 
in Puccini's day, that would be thought to be a solution of some sort. It's very interesting because Long, who wrote the original novel, novella on which Belasco uh, made the play, did tell somebody that, in fact, he knew the son, oh. that he'd met Butterfly's son by, by not Pinkerton, but by the officer. Uh, whether this was true, who knows? Who knows? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time left. If you'd like to ask any of us questions about what we've been talking about, that would be splendid. There is the Eno roving mic about to rove. Put your hand up, catch my eye, and, 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 and who would like to ask a first question? Do we have a question? Yes, in the front row in the corner. Wait, the microphone is on its way. A, a really simple question for Mita. Sure. Do you prefer to sing Madame Butterfly in Italian or in English? Ooh, um, well, I, I think that the music lends itself to Italian because that's uh, the language it was meant to be sung in. Um, but I also feel that as an as a English speaker, as my first language, um, I think it works equally well um, with this wonderful translation by David Parry. There are some discrepancies. There are always going to be if you you know try and line up the the musical notes with every single syllable. You know, they're not going to be the same as they are in Italian and English. Um, so for me, I think, I, as a singer, I think everyone likes to sing in Italian because the beautiful vowels that you can play with. Um, but with, with the English, it sort of strikes right there straight away. So there are differences and they both have their pros and cons, I think. Mm, Another question in the back row. Sorry to make the microphone run. <laughs> I've always wanted to ask an opera singer this question. Do you ever look at the conductor or are you on your own up there and everybody else is following you? <laughs> um, well, I think that the conductor plays a massive role for everyone, for, for the orchestra and for every single person up there on stage singing. Um, he sort of sets the tempo. He, he is the, the guy or the, the woman that we refer to for everything. And um, if you have a look in the auditorium, you might see television screens, monitors, up in the store <coughs> area. Um, so actually, when, when, it, when we're not looking straight at him, we might be looking at a monitor, but it's, it's right there. So we cheat. But um, yeah, it's really, really important. Thank you. <laughs> One last question. We, I think we've, we've outquested your... Um, ladies and gentlemen, um, one little brief house notice um, at the end. Um, next Wednesday and Thursday, up at the Sadler's Wells Theatre in the Lillian Bailey studio at 7.15, there is an event called Interlude. This is the end of Eno's opera works in the current season, an opportunity to hear young singers who've been part of this project here within English National Opera going through their paces. A chance to spot all sorts of potential excitements and also perhaps to see again some, some old friends. In the meantime, can I say thank you to all of you for being here tonight and I hope you'll enjoy, as I know you will, this evening's performance, but also special thanks to our guests, Sarah Lenton, Mita Ravel and Andrew Smith. Thank you all three very much indeed.